0: Our scripture reading for this World Communion Sunday is from the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. I invite you to hear these words from John's Gospel. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: That was the best meatloaf I ever had. Better than my mama used to make and hers was good too. God rest her soul. That's what someone said about Wee Cafe not too long ago. The food is that good. Some people say it's Birmingham's best kept secret. Lots of people say it's the best food they've had. Now this one fella said, I don't know if I believe this, but he said when he tasted LaWanda's sweet tea, while all the windows shot up, followed by a rush of great wind, a warm glow filled the room and the voice of God thundered down, this is my sweet tea and I am well pleased. <laughs> I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm not sure if I believe that. You see, the tea's a little sweet for my taste. I have to cut it with water. But I know he has one thing right there's nothing like the WE Cafe. WE stands for West End, and when you eat at the WE Cafe, you stand with West End too. It's a pay-as-you-can cafe that's open five days a week. Everybody eats, but everybody gives something too. Not too long ago, I paid $65 for my meal at the We Cafe, and I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. I was working at the pay counter during lunch and a young woman came in that I know well. In fact, I knew that a month earlier, she came to urban ministry because she needed help with rent and utility assistance. I knew that she lived with her mother and her brother. She was the only one that could work, and they had a household income of $25,000. So when she came to the counter, I gave her the same warm welcome that I give everyone. Hey, welcome to the cafe. It's pay as you can. If you're paying cash, there's a, a black box on the wall here. Just put in whatever you can. You can also pay for your meal through volunteering in the community. Just fill out one of these cards. I see you making things better all the time. Or you can pay with a credit card. And she said, Pastor, I'll pay with a card. Well, I turned the iPad around and there's presets on there. It says $10, $20, $30. And so I said, there's a button here that says other. If you'd like to pay a different amount, just click here. She does. She types in $13 and she adds a $1 tip. I turned the iPad around and see $14 and I said, wow, that's so generous. Thank you. She kind of laughed and smiled and blushed. And she said, pastor, I believe in this place. And as she walked past me to get her meal, her meal, I whispered to myself, I thought I believed in this place. Then I pulled out my phone and I did some quick math. I made $65,000 a year. My spouse, Caitlin, makes 50. We have a household income of $115,000. I multiplied that by $14, which is what the young woman paid for her meal, divided that by 25,000, the young woman's household income, $64.50. That's the equivalent of what I would need to pay if I believed in urban ministry as much as she did. So the next time I went to the wee cafe, I paid $65 for my meal and I didn't like it one bit. (laughs) I know that God wants me to spend money toward what I believe in as much as I spend it on myself but it's hard for me to live according to that truth. Our scripture today comes from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. It's the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples since he was crucified. But even though the disciples know the truth of the resurrection, it's hard for them to live that way. The disciples' response to resurrection is relapse. Here's how the story goes. Jesus, in the 20th chapter, is crucified. He's on the cross, and he looks down, and he says, I thirst. So they sponge him up some wine on a hyssop branch. It touches his lips. He says, it's finished, and he takes his last breath. Once it's clear that he's dead, they take a long spear and they pierce his side. Blood and water come out. They pull his body down from the cross and they throw it into an empty tomb in a garden. A few days later, Mary comes to the tomb early on Sunday morning and she sees that the stone is rolled away and the body is gone and she knows someone has stolen it. She runs as fast as she can to find the disciples. She finds Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, now no one knows who this disciple that Jesus loved. No one knows who that is. So I'm just going to say that's you. So Mary finds you and Peter and she says, listen, listen, the tomb is rolled. They've stolen the body. They've stolen the body of our Lord. Your your heart starts to race. You're panicking too. You and Peter run to the tomb as fast as you can. And when you get there, she was right. The body is gone. You're devastated. And so you drop your head and you and Peter go home. But not Mary. She can't leave just yet. She sits outside the tomb and she weeps. And after a while, she turns and she looks into the tomb and there's two angels standing there, one at the head of the bed where Jesus laid and one at the foot of the bed. The angel said to her, why are you crying? And she said, they've taken the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She turns around and there's a man standing there, but she doesn't recognize him. She thought him the gardener, but it was Jesus. He says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she says, please just tell me where the body is. Where is my Lord? And the man says, Mary. And at the sound of her name, she recognized who it was. Later that night, the disciples were locked in a room for fear of the Jews. Did you catch that? Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. It's often the people of our own religious tradition that scare us the most. But even though the doors were locked, Jesus appeared among them and said, peace be with you. And boy, you know, they needed it. Fear will drive out peace faster than anything else. Then Jesus breathes on them. And in that breath, they receive the Holy Spirit and the power to forgive and retain sins. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. My best guess is that he was out getting groceries. That means one of two things. Either A, he was the bravest disciple or B, he drew the short straw. Either way, he wasn't there. Well, when he gets back, the disciples are trying to tell him what happened, and he's not having it. He doesn't like them joking around about something so serious. Finally, he says, listen, guys, I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes, and I touch those wounds with my own hands. One week later, even though the doors were shut, locked last time, only shut now, yeah, some progress is made, Jesus appears among them and says, Peace be with you. He looks at Thomas and says, Come and see. And don't you know he did? But he didn't ask to get breathed on, though. I always thought he should have done that. Some time passes, we don't know how long, maybe a few weeks to a few months. And finally, they muster up the courage to go outside. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The disciples said, well, we'll go with you. Now, they fished at night because the nets were really bulky and the fish could see them during the day. Well, they fished all night, didn't have any luck. The sun came up, which means the fishing was over, and there was a man standing on the shore. It was Jesus, but it didn't look like him. He called out, have you caught anything? And they said, no. He said, cast your nets on the other side. And when they did, the catch of fish was so large, it just about capsized the boat. Now you, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you recognize that phrase, cast your nets on the other side. It's the same phrase he used when he called you. And the catch of fish confirmed it. You cry out, it's the Lord. Peter's so excited, he throws a shirt on, jumps in the water, swims to shore. Y'all come in right after him. And when you get there, Jesus has a charcoal fire going and he's already cooking fish. He says, Peter, go back to the boat and get the rest. Peter hauls the net ashore. There's 153 fish in there and the nets didn't even break. Jesus says, Let's have breakfast. So he takes the bread, he gives thanks to God, he breaks it, and he gives it to you and the other disciples. And it makes you think about the last supper. And when Peter tasted that fish, perhaps he thought, that's the best fish I ever had, better than when Jesus fed the 5,000. God rest his soul. It's like having a little piece of him back here with us. Have you ever noticed how humble the resurrection is? One of my professors used to love to point this out. Jesus only appears to people who already believe in him, Mary and the disciples. And half the time he isn't even recognizable. Mary thought him the gardener. The disciples, when he was on the shore, they didn't know him by his face. Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of it. The resurrection, it's humble. It's quiet. Oh, I'd have done it different. Yes, I would. I would have gone up to the hilltop, preached a sermon hovering about three foot off the ground and knocked all their socks off. And then I would have headed over to the temple where all those corrupt Pharisees and money changers were, and I would have given them a piece of my mind. I would have made my way over to Pontius, walked up and said, hey there, Pilate, remember me? I'm back. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to convince anyone who doesn't already know the truth. In fact, he's so subtle about it that half the time, even they could have missed it. Mary could have missed it, but the way he said her name. The disciples fishing could have missed it, but he used that same phrase that he did last time. Cast your nets on the other side, and the catch of fish confirmed it. The transformation that follows the resurrection is about as humble as Jesus' appearances. The disciples are locked in a a room. They experience the resurrected Lord. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They unlock the door. (laughs) One week later, the resurrected Lord appears to them again. Thomas touches the wounds in his hands. What do they do? A few months later, they muster up the courage to go outside, but they go back to the trades they had before they knew Jesus. Fishing. The disciples' response to resurrection is relapse. Believing in the resurrection doesn't change their lives overnight. It's a slow change. Our Easter Sunday celebrations miss the humility of the resurrection. It's the biggest Sunday of the year. We bust out all the stops, the bells and whistles. The cross is flowered. Easter lilies fill the sanctuary. We wear our finest clothes. People are baptized. Good Friday is over and my diet is too. Am I right? We drink all the coffee and beer and wine we gave up for Lent, and by 6 a.m., our kids are stuffed with chocolate and candy. On Easter, we celebrate how the resurrection changed the world overnight. But not Jesus. No, he's quietly standing over there in the shadows. And if you're not paying attention, you'll miss him. But if your antenna is up, If you're curious enough, if you know what to listen for, you will experience the abundance of the resurrection, even after a long night of defeat and empty nets. That's the only way that he's appeared to me. I've lived in West End for eight years and families of West End are no strangers to long nights, empty nets and defeat. But it's precisely in the places of pain and hardship where something like resurrection can even occur. Several years ago, I started walking the streets with my 76 year old neighbor, Mr. Boyd. We'd walk for several miles and stop on a corner and pray for a school, or stop here and pray for a family that was hurting. After about a year and a half of consistent walking, one day he comes over to my house, knocks on the door, and he has a shoebox. It says Johnston and Murphy on top. I open the door and he says, Pastor, I've been looking at your feet and I'm pretty sure we wear the same size. I want you to have these. Well, I open up the box and there's a beautiful pair of shoes in there. And I said, wow, thank you. These are nicer than any shoes that I own. This is an incredible gift. He says, I know it's a good gift. You want to know how I know? I said, how's that? He said, because it hurts me to give them to you. (laughs) Well, I tried to give them back. I said, Mr. Boyd, I don't want to hurt you. He said, no, that's how I know it's a good gift. I love those shoes. I only wear them once a year. I keep them in the box, but I can't wait to see you wear them. They're the best shoes I ever had, better than the ones my granddad gave me, and those were good now. God rest his soul. When I wear those shoes, I carry a little piece of Mr. Boyd with me. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about a church member, Emery Barnes, who was killed two years ago. He was walking to work at about eight o'clock in the morning and he was hit by a car. It was an accident. Still don't quite know how it happened. Emery was a giant of a man. He was 6'5 and 380 pounds. Now, Emery was a character, he was a jokester. Every minute of every day, he always wanted to make people laugh, never serious. If any of you are familiar with Tyler Perry's Medea, that was Emory. In fact, when we had youth group talent shows, Emory always insisted on dressing up as Medea and emceeing our church talent shows. He'd borrow a dress from Ernestine and a big wig, glasses, have a cigar in his mouth, and a cane. We had to have somebody back muting the mic because uh, he he wasn't good at his filter and was often inappropriate, but always funny. In hindsight, it was a terrible pastoral decision to let him do this. Now, one day Emory came to my office and he said, pastor, I want to have a men's retreat. Well, my mind started racing. Several thoughts. The first was, this is a bad idea. A Medea-led men's retreat might get people closer to the devil. It ain't going to get nobody closer to Jesus, right? And so then I prayed, Lord, give me a way out of this one. And so I turned to Emory and I said, Emory, yeah, we can have your men's retreat, but under two conditions. First, you have to find 12 men who sign their names saying they want to go. Second, you have to find a retreat center that will let us stay for free overnight. Emory clapped his hands and he said, Pastor, I'll do you one better. I'll get your 12 men. I'll get us a retreat center and I will provide and cook all the food. Pretty good deal. Emory left feeling good. I stayed feeling relieved. I knew there was no way 12 men were going to sign up for this retreat. One month went by, no Emory. Two months went by. No, Emory. On the third month, Emory came to my office with a list of 12 names, and he had found a retreat center that let us stay overnight for free. Well, we set the date for the retreat. I went and picked up the church van. Emory and I went to all the men's houses, picked them up. As we were driving to the retreat center, Emory said, Pastor, we got to stop by Topcat's house. Now, Topcat was Emory's father, who I actually knew really well. So I drove over to his dad's house. Emory hopped out of the van and he said, no, pastor, you got to come in with me. Come on. So we walked through the yard, went into the house, and there was Topcat sitting in his recliner with no shirt on, no shoes on, drinking beer at 930 in the morning. Right. Emory walks up and he says, dad, dad, I need your help. And I brought my pastor with me today so that you know that I'm telling the truth. You see, we're on our way to a men's retreat and I told pastor that I would buy all the food. Well, I've been saving up my food stamps for three months and I don't quite have enough to buy the chicken. Would you give me some of your food stamps so that I can buy the chicken for this men's retreat pastor? He's here. That's my word top cat's face cracked into a big smile he lifted up his feet and wiggled his toes emory looked at his feet and said no daddy no and top cat said oh yes Emery, i'd be glad to share but it you know what it'll cost you he wiggled his toes again emory said anything but that come on dad not that not that I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, looking at those toes made me queasy, right? His toenails were so long, they curled at the end, right? Finally, Emory said, all right, dad, later this week, I'll give you a one-hour foot rub, but not a minute longer if you'll share some food stamps with me. Top Cat clapped his hands and said, praise Jesus. He reached over, grabbed his snap card and handed it to Emory. Emory and I walked out the door through the yard. I put my arm around him, and I said, Emory, if Jesus can wash feet, you can rub them. It's going to be okay. We got in the van. We drove to a Marino's grocery store. Emory turned to me just before he hopped out. He held up his snap card and his dad's. He looked at me and said, Pastor, this is going to be the best meal you've ever had. And at the sound of those words, I recognized who it was. I'm afraid we've forgotten the sound of Jesus's voice. Mary and the disciples knew what to listen for. Mary knew how he said her name. The disciples recognized that familiar phrase, cast your nets on the other side. They got to have them in flesh. But you and I, we don't always know what to listen for. Jesus is around you every single day, especially when things are hard. But we miss it. And when we miss it, our nets come back empty. If you feel like you've forgotten, if like the disciples, the resurrection has left you in relapse, if there are days when you feel more atheist than Christian, if you cast your nets in this world looking for meaning, but they keep coming back empty, If your fall to rock bottom was so hard that it broke your legs, lift up your chin and look to the shore. Jesus is there. You will not recognize his face. But if you know what to listen for, it's the only way that he's appeared to me. When we experience the joy of God's abundance, our catch will just about capsize the boat. But the miracle won't be the size of the catch, but the fact that your nets didn't break. Come by Urban Ministry, give abundantly to what you believe in, give so much that it hurts. Come to the We Cafe, pay what you can, listen, and I promise you, it will be the best
0: meal you've ever had. Amen.